Well, hear the word of the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Amen. This is the word of God. Do you know there are people in Australia who go out to desolate places in the outback of Australia and they take with them some sort of digging equipment and they go out there and they just start digging. You know, they dig holes, I don't know, every 10 meters probably apart and they just keep digging and digging and they do that for days and weeks and months and sometimes even years until they finally find what they're looking for. And when they find what they're looking for, they stop digging everywhere and just dig deeper and deeper into that one place, for the, probably for the rest of their lives. Now, who are they? They are opal miners. Uh, but once they find an opal reef, they just keep going deeper and deeper in that one spot. And in some ways, that, that actually gets to the heart of what the letter of the, to the Colossians is all about. See, Colossians, it's all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And Colossians tells us that the gospel, it's kind of like looking for opals. <clears throat> because you can go searching everywhere for truth, for meaning, for a full life, uh, for the answers to your problems and to the answers to the problems in the world. You can search everywhere kind of like an opal miner. But see, once you come to know Jesus, as he's presented to us in the gospel, you no longer have to keep digging all over the place. You just need to go deeper and deeper into him and discover all of the riches of who he is and what he has done for us. See, that's what Paul's letter to the Colossians is all about. Everything we need to fully experience God and to experience salvation and to live a full life Everything we need is all found in Christ, in Christ. That's the catchphrase of Colossians. Uh, and Colossians tells us that we are complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. That's the name of the um, sermon series that we'll be looking at over these, uh, these next few months. Um, so we're complete in Christ. But like the Colossians, we actually have a hard time embracing that. Uh, we can be like a miner who has found what he's looking for and yet keeps going out and checking over here and checking over there, always looking over his shoulder. Maybe he should dig somewhere else. You see, like the Colossians, we actually have a whole lot of influences and opinions and ideas and values and advertisements and media and even our own noisy hearts 
constantly telling us that a more full life can be found elsewhere other than Jesus. Uh, or if we just add something to what we already know, embrace some other philosophy, kind of spice it up a bit, you know, that Jesus isn't enough. Uh, and so it's like we're under this constant barrage, which makes us lose sight of just how incredible the gospel of Jesus is. We forget that we're complete in Christ. And so we need the letter to the Colossians as much as those original readers need it. We need to constantly come back to the fact that we are complete in Christ. And see, straight away in this letter, Paul gets straight into business. Um, you know, he takes a normal greeting and he instantly goes to the very heart of why he's writing this letter to the Colossians. It's to assure them that they have found what they're looking for. They've found Jesus. They have been impacted by this glorious gospel. And so this passage that we're looking at today, it's all about that impact the impact that the gospel makes. That's why I've called this message Gospel Impact. And this passage tells us uh, what gospel impact is. It tells us how God does that gospel impact. And then finally, it tells us why. Why the gospel makes this kind of impact. So let's look at these three things. First, we learn what gospel impact is. And we see that in verses 3 to 5. Oh, the first part of verse 5. Uh, you see, if you wanted to know if Jesus has come into your life, if you wanted to know if you've been impacted by him, if, if he is impacting you, if you wanted to see evidence that the gospel has actually gripped you and is transforming you, what would you look for? What would be the telltale signs? Or if we wanted to think more widely, how would, how would you know if a church has been impacted by the gospel? How would you know if a church is a place where the gospel is central, where it has been believed and lived out? What would be the telltale signs of gospel impact? And one way of answering that is these things that Paul gives thanks to God for concerning the Colossians. So he says in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I'm sure you've come across these three things before in the Bible, faith, love and hope. Uh, Paul often groups these three things together, most famously, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where these three remain faith, hope and love. And the greatest, he says, there is love. Um, but when Paul groups these three things together, it's his way of giving us a succinct summary or, or a succinct description of someone who has been impacted by the gospel, someone who, who, who has experienced a real work of God's spirit to change them. Uh, these three together, faith, love and hope, these are the hallmarks of the gospel changing you, gospel impact. And the reason these three are the hallmarks of uh, gospel impact is because properly understood, these three things are not possible um, without the gospel gripping you and transforming you from the inside out. See, none of these are natural tendencies. This faith, love and hope, they're not natural tendencies. They're not things that we can produce of ourselves. 
You know, sometimes people think, well, if you grow up in a Christian home, these things kind of naturally just grow on you, almost like as if you're born into them, or as if it's something that, you know, like a tradition that you can't shake off. Uh, but that's actually not the case. None of these things are natural to anyone. Uh, the very fact that Paul thanks who? Who does Paul thank for these, these faith, hope, and love? He thanks God, not the Colossians. That just proves that these are characteristics we can't produce by ourselves. These are God's work. This is his work that he does only through the gospel message. These only come about from having the gospel worked into your heart and remaking you into someone completely new. And you can see that in the way they're described. Notice in each of these characteristics, this faith, love and hope, that each have an object to them, uh, which sets them apart as distinctly gospel produced. So look at the first one uh, where Paul thanks God for the Colossians faith. Now, faith on its own, plenty of people have faith. I mean, most people believe in something out there, you know, or maybe God's out there somewhere, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. This is faith. What is the object? In Christ Jesus. It's faith in Christ himself. And that, of course, includes believing who Jesus really is, accepting who he is, not who you want him to be, but who he actually is, that he is fully God and fully man, that he has come into the world and lived a perfect life and died on the cross in the place of sinners. It's to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive today. He's ascended into heaven. He's ruling and he will come again to judge the earth. These are gospel facts and real faith means believing these, staking your life on them, building your life on them. Believe, believing who Jesus is and what he has done. But this faith, it's more than just agreeing with certain doctrines. This is actually, faith in Christ means to rely on a person. It means a personal relationship where, of dependence and trust in Christ. Uh, faith in Christ means depending on him to be your Lord and your Savior. Faith in Christ means relying on him alone to make you right with God, his work alone. Faith in Christ means the very opposite of trying to save yourself. Faith in Christ is looking away from yourself, not, not depending on your efforts to make you right with God, but only on Jesus. That's faith in Christ. And that is evidence. If you have faith in Christ Jesus, that is evidence that God has changed you, that the gospel has impacted you. But then we see that faith never exists on its own. It is always accompanied by and always followed by, always displayed in love. That's the second of these characteristics. And again, there's nothing general about this second characteristic. This isn't, this isn't just um, nice feelings about others. Everyone has that. Uh, no, no, this love that Paul's talking about, it's stronger than feelings. This is actually a commitment of the will. This love is a commitment to put the best interests of others ahead of your own as you relate to them. See, by nature, we are self-absorbed. By, by nature, we only care for people who will benefit us in some way. But this love is selfless. 
This love is sacrificial. This love is willing to sacrifice your own resources of time and, and money and comfort. But the heart of it, if you have a look here, what sets this apart, again, it's the object of this love. What is the object of it? The love that you have for all the saints. Now, a saint, a saint just means a fellow believer. Uh, every Christian is a saint because every Christian, uh, the word saint means set apart for God. And so every, every Christian is set apart for God. A saint refers to your status as someone set apart for God. It doesn't refer to some personal achievement you've made. And uh, every, fellow every fellow believer is a saint. And therefore, the gospel produces love for other believers. But what is actually unique about this love is probably that word all. See, the love that you have for all, all the saints. And that puts it on a whole new level. Uh, because this is not something that's restricted to uh, Christians who are just like you. You know, it's easy to, to love Christians who are like you, you know, who think like you and, and enjoy the same sorts of things that you enjoy. That's easy. But this, this is actually love for all the saints, even ones who are different, even ones who, who naturally you probably wouldn't warm to all that much. Do you know, at the time when Paul wrote this letter, it was absolutely remarkable that you could have Jews and Gentiles caring for each other, hanging out with each other, looking after each other in the same church, in the Colossian church. It was just incredible. That was unheard of. But that's what this love does. It, it, it crosses divides. It's love for all the saints. Do you know, in our own day, we live in a culture that really is hopelessly divided. I mean, if anything, this pandemic has just proved that. It is hopelessly divided. And yet, among true believers, you, you will find that those sorts of divides don't prevent us from loving and caring for people, even if they have a different opinion on some of these disputable matters. Well, here's another way of looking at this love. <clears throat> In a church context, this love doesn't insist on getting your own way. Okay? In a church context, you care more about the unity of the whole than you do about getting your own way. That's love for all the saints. Well, let's look at it another way. Are you angry with another believer at this moment? Is there someone that you're avoiding? Someone you're bitter with? Someone that you look down upon? Is there someone in the church that you think, they're not worth my time? If, that, if that's true, do you know what's wrong? The gospel isn't impacting you. The love of Christ isn't gripping your heart. See, because this is gospel-produced love. When the gospel impacts you, this is what happens. Love for all the saints. So faith in Christ, love for all the saints, a third characteristic of a real work of God is, of course, this hope. And no doubt you've heard a thousand times that hope in the Bible, the meaning of hope, isn't just wishful thinking like it is in common English. You know, we say, oh, well, I hope so. You know, I hope it's a nice day tomorrow. That's not how hope is used in the Bible. Hope in the Bible means a certain expectation of a future reality. 
a certain expectation of a future reality. And you can see that here again where there's an object to this hope. What is the object? It says it's the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I don't know if you realize, but most of what God has in store for us as believers, it's actually still to come. Most of what he has, it's still to come. You know, we have salvation in Christ now, but not yet. Now, but not yet. I wonder if you've heard that before. See, the bulk of salvation, it still lies in the future. I mean, we're, we're still looking forward to the return of Christ. We're looking forward to being uh, raised like him, of living forever in, in a restored universe. That's all still to come. And to say that it's laid up for you in heaven, your salvation laid up for you in heaven, that means that no one can take it away. It's secure forever. No one can snatch it from you. It's safe. And so our hope as believers is this sure confidence of the complete eternal salvation that we have in Christ. That means what the best that God has for us is still to come. That's our hope. And you know, hope, it's so central to um, believers. You know, I've met people over the years who have become disappointed with the Christian faith, even disgruntled because it didn't turn out to be everything that they expected. You know, they, they struggle with the fact that they still have to wrestle with temptation and still have to endure trials. Uh, they still have to endure um, relationship difficulties. And, you know, the church wasn't as nice as it should have been. All of these uh, difficulties. But in most cases, the thing that's actually missing is this hope, the hope of the gospel. It's, it's missing the fact that we don't have everything now. It's not, it's not all given to us now. It's, the best is still to come. Yes, what we have now in salvation is beyond our wildest dreams. You know, the salvation that we have now, it is wonderful. It is life-changing. It's society-impacting. It's culture-shaping. It is wonderful now. And on top of that, the best is still to come. The best is still to come. It's, we keep looking forward. What we have now is only the beginning. See, that's the hope of the gospel. And so here we see, how do you know you're the real deal? How do you know that the gospel of Jesus is impacting you? You are characterized by faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, and hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's these three together. These three together, not one out of three, not two out of three, but these three together are the evidence that the gospel is impacting you. You're being transformed. And see, Paul could thank God. That's what this passage is. It's Paul thanking God because he has heard the way the gospel was impacting the Colossians. And so he stops and he, before anything else, he gives thanks to God for the Colossians. And I wonder, is that something people could give thanks to God about you? Are you a person who, who is characterized by these things? Faith, love, hope. Is this something we can thank God for in our church? Are we characterized by these 
this gospel impact? Is the gospel something that we just say we believe? Or is it actually impacting us? Is it impacting our church? See, this is gospel impact. Faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, hope laid up in heaven. Gospel impact. Well, now let's talk about how God makes that impact. How God makes the gospel impact us. How does he do it? How does God produce people of faith, love and hope? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in the rest of verse 5. So let's look at this right to the end of the passage. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now have a look at how the gospel impacted the Colossians. See, Paul says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Then at the end of verse 6, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it. Okay, so how were the Colossians impacted by the gospel? How was their eternal destiny changed? Simply by hearing, understanding and learning a message. That's how it happened. Um, Paul goes on to say they learned it from Epaphras. And if we were to piece together all the background information, you know, stuff from this letter in the book of Acts, we realize that the church at Colossae it came about by Epaphras. Uh, he, first of all, learned the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, most likely. Uh, might have spent a couple of years with Paul there. But he then went back to his hometown in Colossae and he spread the gospel, told people this, this message about Jesus. He taught it and it spread. People were impacted by it. Now, Paul didn't have anything to do with that. Paul had never met the Colossians when he wrote this letter. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. See, the Colossians just learned the gospel from Epaphras. And so in some ways, what happened was, it was very ordinary. All that happened was just some local bloke named Epaphras communicated a message with words, and yet God did his greatest work through that. See, that's how the gospel impacts people, just by someone communicating it with words. And that, that's actually amazing to think about, because in some ways, there's nothing all that impressive about gospel work. It's just communicating, talking about a message. Uh, you know, for God to impact people, we don't need an impressive show or a great entertaining speaker or signs and wonders or all that glamour and glitz that you see on the TV. You don't need that. God does his life changing, eternity altering work through ordinary people communicating a message with words. That's how he does it. Now, notice Epaphras is called a faithful minister of Christ uh, in the passage. Why? Because he taught the gospel faithfully and he cared for those who he taught. 
In chapter 4, Paul um, talks about how he always wrestled in prayer uh, for the Colossians. So he genuinely cared for them. But he's called a faithful minister because he communicated the message faithfully. Uh, You know, he may have been a really impressive communicator or a very ordinary communicator. But you know what? Those categories don't really matter. What matters is faithfulness, proclaiming the message faithfully. The effectiveness of gospel work doesn't depend on how impressive the speaker is. It depends on God working powerfully through this message. And so what matters is whether the speaker is faithful. And Epaphras was faithful. What Paul received from Jesus, Paul faithfully taught Epaphras. What Epaphras learned from Paul, he faithfully taught the Colossians. He was a faithful minister. That's what matters. And so Epaphras, he didn't try to improve the message. He didn't try to change it. He didn't didn't try to add to it. He didn't try to take away from it. He didn't water it down. He didn't try to be clever. He didn't try to manipulate. He didn't try to pretend to be something he wasn't. He preached the message faithfully. He lived the message faithfully. Why? Because it is the word of truth, as Paul says in verse 5. This is not something made up. This is not something we can tamper with. This is God's gospel. It comes from the one true God. And God does his greatest work as people faithfully teach this message, the gospel. And just to get across how powerful this ordinary work of teaching the gospel is, notice in verse 6, Paul says about the gospel, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Now, what's surprising about that is that Paul describes uh, the gospel increased almost like it has a life of its own. You know, it gets into people, it takes over, it transforms. It's like um, when I was 11, um, my parents built a house on a one acre block. Uh, Very exciting time, I remember. And, you know, you've got all this space for the garden. And I remember the first, one of the first plants my mum planted was a plant called a jolly jump up. And I remember at the time asking her, why is it called a jolly jump up? And um, she didn't know at the time, but I tell you what, in a couple of years, we knew why it was called a jolly jump up because that thing just spread everywhere, came up everywhere, basically from one end of the one acre block to the other. It was coming up even in the pavers. It just grew like a weed. In fact, it was coming up in the neighbor's yard and even down the street. And see, that's the way Paul describes the gospel in, in this, in verse six. It just keeps bearing fruit and increasing. See, it gets into people. It takes over, it reshapes them. And not only that, it even goes far and wide. It goes into all the world. Do you know, I've heard an extensive study um, and calculations by some scholars who estimated that at the end of the first century, there was some half a million Christians in the world, which is pretty impressive given uh, the small beginnings uh, of the church. Um, But what's really impressive about that half a million is that those half a million were spread across all kinds of cultures and in all kinds of classes. You know, it was among the rich and the poor, among slaves and free, among uh, educated and uneducated. 
among men and women, young and old. You know, there were Christians popping up in the most unexpected places. If you read through Paul's greeting lists in his letter, you get a sense of this. One of the standout ones is in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 22, where he says, All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Caesar's, that's just people who work in Caesar's household. Uh, that's so unexpected. Caesar was an enemy of the gospel. But it's like that even today. The gospel bearing fruit and increasing everywhere, even in the most unlikely places. You know, Open Doors uh, Ministry, if you look on their website, uh, they talk about where the gospel is, is spreading today, and it's just remarkable. You know, they say there's some 300,000 uh, Christians living in North Korea. Um, today, they, they talk about how even with the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, the gospel is still bearing fruit and growing. It's still, you know, Christians are living there. The gospel's spreading. It's just unstoppable. And so if you think about our own context, you know, for all of the changes in our own culture, do you think that's going to stop the gospel bearing fruit and increasing? Not a chance. This is God's gospel. It's going to keep going forward. And so if you put this together, what we said earlier about uh, just the ordinary work of teaching the gospel, that's how it spreads. Now we can see when we look at verse 6 that there's nothing ordinary about this. Teaching the gospel, this is, this is like, it's like a fire spreads. Uh, you know, and so we think about all the, the teaching ministries in our church. You know, I think of um, this online service right now or um, the, the Zoom Bible studies that we have going at the moment. Uh, but when we get back together, we're going to have church services, Bible studies, meeting in homes, uh, mainly music will be running again, the play group, youth group, Sunday school. Uh, we've been encouraging family worship. You know, we've got all of these places, all of these events where the gospel is being taught, the ordinary work of teaching, teaching God's word. And yet there's nothing ordinary about that at all. This is how God does his greatest work. Or think about that, that brief conversation you have with your neighbor over the fence. And they ask you, what did you do on Sunday? And you talk about church. You talk about how you learned about something about Jesus. Or that conversation over morning tea at work. And you talk about the gospel. It seems very ordinary, just a conversation. And yet there is nothing ordinary about it at all. This is how God does this eternity-altering work. This is how God produces people of faith, love, and hope when the gospel has this impact and it comes about by communicating it with words. And just one other thing about this phrase in verse 6. Paul says, In the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing. Now, commentators like to point out that the wording that Paul chooses to use there sounds awfully similar to um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And that's where God gives the um, mandate to humanity uh, to um, be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. And if that's the case, which it certainly seems like that is the case, <clears throat> it's like Paul is saying that the gospel finally fulfills that creation mandate. Um, because when God said, go and fill the earth, he was, it's more than just numerical growth. It's fill the earth with worshippers of God, 
with people who worship and serve the living God. That's, that's the mandate. But now we see that it's the gospel that fulfills this mandate uh, it, it, into the whole world. It bears fruit and increases. It's finally filling the earth with the worshippers that God seeks. And so here it is again. How will we fill our homes with believers? How will we fill our church with true worshippers? How will we fill our suburb with people who worship the true and living God? How will we fill the world with believers? Teach the gospel. That's how God does it. That's how the gospel impact happens. So we've learned what gospel impact is. People of faith, love and hope. We've learned how God does it by communicating it with words, the gospel. But now we see also why. We see why the gospel has such a powerful impact on people. Why is it that this message of Jesus uh, has such a powerful impact in people and in the world? And the answer is at the end of verse 6, where Paul calls it the grace of God in truth. See, the gospel, it's about God's grace. The gospel is about God's undeserved kindness. That's what grace means. See, the heart of the message of the gospel is that God has done something incredibly wonderful for you that you do not deserve and that you cannot earn. See, the gospel is about Jesus. It's about how he lived the life that you fail to live. And he died the death that you should have died. The gospel is that on the cross, Jesus took the penalty that you deserve for all your rebellion against God. And not only that, but in exchange, he gives you his record of righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the grace of God in truth. And when we think about God's grace, that all of this is given to us as an undeserved gift. Now we know why it's so powerful. Now we know why it has such an impact. Because how can you be a person of faith in Christ? How can that happen? Only when you know that your salvation rests fully and only on Jesus. Then you stop trusting in yourself. That's the only way you can be a person of faith in Christ Jesus. How can you be a person of love for all the saints? Only when you know that God has loved you when you were unlovable. Only when you know that God has loved you despite your failings. And when you know God has treated you like that, then you look at other people and think, who am I to treat them any differently? How can you be a person of hope laid up in heaven? Only when you know that your salvation fully rests on Jesus alone. Because if it rests on him, then it's certain. If it rests on you, it's uncertain. So you can only have hope laid up in heaven if it's salvation by grace. See, only the gospel of grace can transform self-reliant, self-centered, hopeless individuals into the real deal. And this is why this message, this gospel, why it makes such an impact, because it's all of grace. See, think about it. If salvation was by works, then there's boasting, then there's superiority, then there's division and then there's doubt uncertainty uh, you never know if you're going to make it but if it's by grace then there's humility then there's 
equality, then there's love, then there's certainty. See, the, and the deeper you go into the gospel, think of that, that mind that we talked about at the start. The deeper you go, the more you pull out of, of the, the gospel, the, all the riches that God has laid up for you there, the more that it impacts your life. The more that it transforms you, the more that it makes you a person of faith in Christ, love for all the saints, and hope laid up in heaven. That's the gospel impact. This message is so powerful, it will change the world as it changes you and me. And so thank God for gospel impact. Praise God for this glorious gospel. Well, let's pray.